Queer Relationships, an IM Clinic podcast devoted to helping you, the LGBTQ plus community, create the love lives and relationships you crave. Although hookups are widely acceptable in our culture, a lot of people interact with Grindr and Scruff and Hinge and Tinder in a way that leaves them feeling almost as though they have a sexual addiction. As we begin to open up Pandora's box around sexuality and the behaviors that feel like an addiction, we realize that there's a ton of influential interactions stemming from childhood that shift the way not only our brain operates, but shift the I am statements that define and characterize our self-concept. From I am loved, a shift into I am dirty. From I am enough into I need to earn my value. I am inadequate. Today's guest brings some incredible vulnerability. We talk about those very significant interactions stemming from parents and church all the way to his coming out and his religious deconstruction. And we break open these I am statements that have really characterized his sense of self. Some of the more salient I am messages where I am unlovable, I am disgusting, I should hate myself, I'm not strong enough specifically strong enough to overcome this thing that feels like a sexual addiction. Today's episode will speak to so many lives and I think bring a lot of healing power. His courage to open up and speak so honestly is transformative. Let's take a listen. background like what was what was that religious environment like or the home like what what helped you maybe and maybe I'm assuming here but think that maybe conversion therapy was a good option for you yeah yeah I think I think for me I I actually grew up in a pretty I mean as normal as you could call it home um I my family uh, immigrated to the United States when I was six. Um, I'm originally from from Colombia in South America, and you know, from a I mean, from a pretty normal uh, you know childhood. You know, I went to like Disney World, and you know, had toys and played video games, and um, yeah, had a TV, computer, um, and. Um, and I had a pretty common experience for someone of my of my age range, you know, growing up in the early 2000s with a with a home computer, was that I actually started to watch uh, like porn pretty pretty early on, and then this was just it was it was it was it was not something that I started doing like intentionally, but just something that sort of popped up um, in my sort of consciousness based on like you know going to school and you know, you know, conversations with my classmates and friends. Mm-hmm. And so I started doing that kind of obviously behind my parents' backs. So, I mean, both my parents worked. And so it was, it was sort of easy to do that when I first got to first got home. Um, but eventually my mom started to like find out that I was doing this. And so we kind of started to go into like this cycle of like, Oh, you're not supposed to be doing this. This is really bad. 
you're too young, you know, like, do you have like a sex addiction? You know, I was like 10. So it's like, I was like, oh, maybe there is something wrong with me. Mm -hmm. Um, And then um, around when I'm like 12, I start, again, I'm like, I'm like very entranced by porn. I'm not, I don't even know really how to like, even like masturbate yet, but like, Mm -hmm. I really enjoy just watching, you know, porn. And so, and then uh, uh, eventually I, I, I discover like gay porn and this just like, that, that just feels like so much better than, than the stuff that I was watching before. Um, and so I start watching that like every single time I get home from school and then I get like really hooked. Um, but by then my mom kind of knows that like, kind of, kind of, kind of knows my patterns and, you know, she's not like one of those moms that's just going to let it slide and like avoid the conversation. She's going to like confront me. And so like she had actually set up a software to like track the pages that I had been on. Like, so I could delete the history, but like it would still show her what sites I had visited. And so uh, uh, eventually my mom, after a couple of months, like hadn't checked and she like finally got the courage to check and she, you know, saw it and, you know, they're just, I mean, there just really isn't a way to lie yourself out of that one. You know, mm-hmm. it's, sure. she just, she just knew that I liked watching gay porn and, you know, and it's interesting. My parents were actually separated at that, at that time and, um, and, and they, and they weren't speaking to each other. And my mom, I'll never forget the image. My mom called my dad like 45 times and I'm not exaggerating. Mm called him like 45 times because she needed to like tell him like something is very wrong with our child like you know like like, this isn't this isn't like normal anymore and I just remember being like so scared because my dad had um previously said that like he would he would like beat anybody that you know like beat his son if he ever found out that he was gay and so I was just like so scared that like I was in physical danger when my dad found out For sure. um but um but yeah but thankfully um he he didn't he didn't take it like that i mean obviously he, he was he was still very much like okay we need to find a solution for this um and basically like the solution that they both came up with and really it was really my mom like you know sort of the dynamic for my parenting was very much my mom and then my dad sort of just went along or complained silently um my mom was like, well, the sort of religious upbringing we've given them of sort of going to church on Easter and, you know, some holidays isn't, isn't working because obviously my son has these thoughts that are bad. Mm-hmm. And so we need to take him to like a hardcore church, like a church that like casts out demons and like, you know, like does like miracles and stuff. And like, I've heard of these churches via TV and so we have to take them to like an evangelical, like charismatic church. For sure. Um, and that's how it started. Like we, we, we started going to like our local mega church and then we got connected to like therapists and yeah. And then I started going when I was like 13 to conversion therapy. Hmm. During this time, how did you feel about yourself? Oh, I felt horrible. I mean, I mean, I completely agree with my parents. I was like, they are a hundred percent correct. I am disgusting. Mm. Um, I, uh. um, you know, like 
this is completely wrong what I'm doing. Like this is, this, this is, this is depraved and horrible and disgusting. Um, and you know, I need to find a way out. So like a, a part of me was almost like relieved when they found out. Cause then I, it almost felt like I could get some help via their, via them, like, you know, finding me therapists and stuff. And so I was like very compliant, you know, and, um, at, at first, and then, um, yeah, up, up, like throughout my teenage years, I, I did it all. I did like online courses. I did, um, I did like, you know, like extra, you know, people in the mainstream would call them like exorcisms in my church. We called them like deliverances mm-hmm. where, you know, they would cast out like, you know, the homosexual demon for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I read books about how like this was, this was me like not having a good relationship with my dad. And so seeking that sort of paternal relationship uh, sexually with other men, um, you know, obviously like having like an overbearing mother. And so then my mom sort of feeling some guilt with that. Um, and yeah. And I was in and out of therapy for seven years. Wow. Yeah. Until I got to college and eventually, even though I had not given up on all the homophobic beliefs, mm-hmm. I was just like, okay, like, I don't think I'm going to change, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, cause, cause, and then by the time I got to college, there, there was also within like conservative Christianity, there was also a, a more mainstream idea of like, okay, LGBTQ folks have to be like celibate for life, you know, like, so they were like moving away from conversion therapy and more towards like, okay, like to honor the Bible and to honor God, you have to be celibate. And so I kind of parked there for, for a little bit. <laughs> sure. In, in college, yeah. Mm-hmm. When you were in therapy for those seven years, was it with a, a state licensed therapist or a psychologist, or was it with a pastoral counselor? Um, I wouldn't be able to tell you. I think most of them were were licensed therapists. I mean, I, I remember seeing like diplomas on their wall. Okay. Um, I think some of them, I mean, most of them, I, I went to their homes to like get therapy. Um, and they, they did have like a Christian bent okay. to, their, to their therapy, but I, I, I do remember them, you know, sort of, um, you know, not, I mean, not being like completely left field uh, pseudo, pseudo, you know, like definitely having some, or like what would appear to be some sort of professional training. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm not sure if, if they actually had a license. Um, yeah. yeah, that, that would be a great question to know now. Yeah. No. Yeah. I hear that. Just, just so I can kind of help unpack this down the road. What were some of the messages that, you trusted or believed in during those seven years? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I, I definitely internalized the message that I was um, like a sex addict, um, that um, that um, that because I had watched so much porn when I was 10 and 11, mm-hmm. that this was actually like a, 
like the natural progression of my sort of sin that I had like, that I had like gotten, that I had gotten like, you know, tired of women. And so that's why I was looking to men. So like when I was like the, the last attempt at like conversion therapy, which was sort of like a group sort of like AA setting with like other sorts of like sex addicts. Um, I, um, and again, like I say all these terms now in like air quotes, I know that people can't see it. Um, but yeah, like, I, I just want to say like, I'm not saying these terms as if I believe them anymore, but just as things that were prevalent in like the language. Um, but yeah, like I was in like a group with other like sex acts and like just mostly like middle-aged straight men who had like cheated on their wives. Okay. Um, and like, and then there was me, like this like 18 year old, like gay kid who like, you know, just like, uh, you know, just like couldn't figure out how to be straight. And so I, um, yeah, like I, I, I remember the leader of that who was like, he was sort of like a pastor. Uh, you know, he didn't, he, I know he didn't have any sort of like formal training. He always said that like God showed him in a dream that if he would have continued in like his life of sin, which like he credited to like, again, towards like pornography, um, he would have ended up gay. So that was like sort of like the narrative that was constructed around it. Um, wow. Yeah. Also like <laughs> reiterating the big one around like um, my relationship with my dad. So like um, with like this sort of like, um, Christian counseling, it, it can get very like Freudian, like very quickly. Mm-hmm. And so like, it just is, everything is about your parents mm-hmm. and everything is about how your parents raised you. And every little trigger about when you were three or four can have like major repercussions and like, not to completely dismiss that, but like their, their conclusion was that like, I, I, I was gay or that I experimented homosexual thoughts because you know because i didn't have a good relationship with my dad Mm -hmm. and so um and so like it was like oh like when when did your dad fail you like when so this also caused me like a lot of like alienation from my father because it was just like a lot of reinforcement of messages like oh my dad's like not a good dad Mm -hmm. because if he would have been a good dad i would have um I would have, um, I would have not turned out like this. Um, you had a good dad and, mom, you would have been straight. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. So that was definitely like a big message. Um, yeah. And so those were, those were definitely um, a, a lot of the messages um, that I got from, from conversion therapy. Mm-hmm. Those are such powerful messages. Yeah. during the developmental stages between the ages of 10 and 18. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, a hundred percent. I mean, as the, as the brain is developing and fastening together its identity, um, its role, its kind of uh, position among its peers establishing its right from wrong, understanding its sexuality and categorizing its experiences. I mean, this is really powerful. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I mean, 
I still struggle with like so much of the stuff that I um, internalized mm-hmm. um, to this day. I mean, it, it's, it's, you know, and it's like hard to like verbalize it because I feel like, um, yeah. Cause it's like, I've been out like publicly out for, it's actually um, five years. Um, it was five years in um, last Friday and congratulations um, thank you yeah (laughs) and so um but like there's almost like this idea of like linear process that's progress that's expected Mm -hmm. of you when when you come out and like you know like not to like uh talk talk bad of like for example campaigns of like it gets better Mm -hmm. um you know where there's sort of this idea of like you come out and then things just like get better you know Mm -hmm. and like in a certain sense, you know, my life is better since I've come out, but also in many other ways, it just, it just isn't like it. it I've, I've, I also, um, have had to confront a lot of those, like, um, you know, like, you know, deep seated, like thoughts and like thought patterns that I internalized when I was mm-hmm. 13 or 14. And I've had, and I still confront them like to this day. And it's, and it's like super difficult because, you know, like, how do I do that? And, you know, who understands this? You know, like it's, it's, it, it can be like very lonely sometimes. Absolutely. Give me um, as much or as little as you want, but kind of some sound bites around what, what do these narratives sound like or maybe even feel like what are you experiencing here yeah so i mean i've i've struggled with my mental health for a while now um um it 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 basically like since i started deconstructing my faith and trying to embrace my sexuality mm-hmm. it was sort of like um like I, I legitimately had built so much of my identity around um, keeping my sexuality locked in and made so many sacrifices around that, uh, because of all the therapy and sort of all the like familial relationships and, you know, all the, all the like homophobia I had grown up with that when I like decided to tear all of that down and start building something new, like it wasn't so much that even just tearing it down was fine, but like, I had to like, I had to like dig out the foundation too. And, and so, um, you know, so like some of those narratives that I, that, that I still struggle with are like, oh, like I am unlovable. Like I, you know, which I, which I recognize now is, 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 is something that I, that I like internalized from like all the shame that I, you know, like from since I was 13 up until like, I, I mean, honestly, up until like very recently, like I, I have literally just been like, uh, dominated by shame. Like that has been like the emotion that had just has absolutely controlled me in so many different ways. Um, um, and not even just in my sexuality, but in many, many other ways. And so, um, like, like just, just not knowing how to have a relationship with myself because the only way I knew how to interact with myself was as like, as like shame is, is as like, as I, as I was like, I am disgusting. I am like, um, not lovable. Mm-hmm. And so like, the only thing I should feel towards myself is like shame and like 
self-hatred. Um, and so that's, that's sort of like something that I feel like I picked up with, with conversion therapy because, um, that shame really, really started really strongly when like I would, um, you know, I would try to do all the exercises they would have me do, like, you know, not think about guys or like, you know, not look at porn and eventually I would fail. And then it was just like all this shame because I was like not strong enough. And so, um, yeah. And then, you know, um, a lot of like frustration with my relationship with my parents, um, particularly with my mom who like is simultaneously the person I like love the most and is like, has been such like an anchor for me in my, in my relationships and who has shown me so much love and so much care in so many areas. But she was also like the architect behind conversion therapy. started Queer Relationships in June of 2020, only 16 months ago. And since that time, we've had over 33,000 downloads. Let me just say, there is a small but a mighty team that produces Queer Relationships. We want to thank one member of that team today. David Vargas was a Queer Relationships co-producer since its beginning. His vision and critique helped ensure that episodes were ready for your listening ears. He cares very deeply about this podcast hoping it will heal so many of our wounds. To David, thank you for investing your energy, hope, talents, and time into giving us this podcast for the last 16 months. I am personally very thankful for all that you have done, not just for queer relationships, but I am clinic as well. We wish you the very best wherever you travel next. Just know, at Queer Relationships, you'll always have a home. in in her like attempts to get me to like you know be in this process and like and like really try my hardest because for her like I never tried hard enough you know she sometimes said some stuff that like really really scarred me like you know like one time she said like this was like you know me being gay was like the worst thing that ever happened to her Mm -hmm. um you know like so like things like that just like really stuck with me and you know just like oh, I am like the worst thing that has happened to my mom, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, so sort of like those narratives, it, it, it's, it's been a process to unlearn, particularly when like, in my case, like I've never gotten like an apology from my, from my mom. Like my mom, as much as I know, she still believes in like conversion therapy and like still thinks that that, that is like, a healthy that that would still be like a healthy thing for me and so yeah so like i just i don't like 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 that healing hasn't hasn't fully hasn't fully happened um around that i like that you use the word healing there because it really kind of characterizes for me the craving to feel safe 
Mm-hmm. Uh, soothed enough, not just for a next door neighbor, but for a loving, one of a kind parent. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And yeah, and like, you know, in my process, I mean, there was even a moment where like I had to stop like speaking with my mom because it was like just so painful, you know, because I just, I, I had to go through that process on my own. Mm-hmm. And, you know, having that conversation every week or every month with her about, how I'm making all these horrible decisions and how, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm straying from the path of God. And, you know, eventually I just had to like disconnect from that and be like, okay, I'm just going to not do this um, for like nine months. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, you know, thankfully I was like living in another city and I didn't see her. I didn't talk to her. I didn't interact with her. Um, and, and, and that, and that was painful, but it, but it was, but it was necessary, um, because it, it just helped me to like figure out who I was without, um, sort of, uh, you know, like this idea of like, oh, like my mom needs me to be this person and mm-hmm. I will never be this person for her. You know, I, I will never be like straight and married and, you know, Christian, like in this perfect way that she wants me to be. I'm almost thinking, yeah, that this nine months of not talking to her was almost necessary for the development of self-esteem, self-love, grace, and just an open window to see if you could even accept yourself. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. A hundred percent. I mean, that's, that's really what it was. I mean, it was my first time living not in the same city as my mom. And it was, you know, the first time I like moved somewhere and I was like completely out from the beginning Uh and, um, you know, and I, and I could really experiment with like my sexuality and, um, yeah. And like, even though I did, I didn't experiment as, as much as I thought I would, I, I, I was able to, to really process a lot of things, um, on my own deal with, deal with some trauma that I had in, in, in college from, from some like broken relationships based on like my coming out and, um, yeah. And just, and just being able to like connect with that part of my, you know, that part of myself. And yeah, yeah, I I think you, I think you said it very well. I often kind of use this as a little mantra, but the more stubborn the parents homophobia, the more stubborn our internalized homophobia will be. Mm, Yeah. 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 That's, that's a good one. I mean, that's, that's, that's definitely my case. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I have, and I have a very stubborn parent. (laughs) For sure. Sometimes with, I didn't mean to say for sure your mom's really stubborn, but I'm, my brain is going a thousand miles a minute over here. (laughs) It does have strong beliefs. I will say that. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it, it's the reality, you know, and, 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 uh, you know, to be, to be fair, one of the things I've, I've done that's, that sort of helped me cope and also like, you know, sort of create a, a new relationship with my mom that's sort of based, that's not completely based on this difference, but it's sort of like, see, like the ways that I sort of like am similar to her in, in that respect, like, you know, like the fact that my mom is so stubborn in, in her beliefs is very similar to the way that I am, you know, like the fact that like I am now like so stubborn about me being like gay and um, wanting to be happy. And, you know, even if that goes against cultural norms or, you know, like societal norms. Um, and my mom has a little bit of that too. Cause it's like, you know, I don't obviously like, we, I, I believe we live, we still live in a world that, that, that has a lot of work to do when it comes to accepting LGBTQ and queer and like trans folks. But I think we've also made enough progress where like what my mom thinks is also like not very mainstream. And so like my mom is also a little bit countercultural and like what she believes and like, you know, like she, the fact that she still sort of believes like, Hey, gay people can change is just like a testament to her stubbornness. <laughs> um, and I sort of draw from that, but obviously in like the completely different direction. Like I want to be stubborn for like countercultural change that is like accepting and draws more and more people in, into like a circle of like inclusion and like liberation and, you know, like love. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I get the opportunity to work with a lot of parents along a spectrum from the the parents who are concerned and want to love their kids and be supportive and affirming all the way to the parents who have been so convinced for many reasons that anything other than their sexuality or their gender presentation is wrong. And I think that we have people being convinced not only by, and this is the sad part, by the church and by these like dogmatic black and white statements, but also I think by trauma. Yeah. That if I was a a victim of some kind by someone who could do something so sexually harmful, then anything sexually deviant can easily be categorized. And I obviously I have no idea what your mom's history is like, but I do sometimes see unrelenting parents hold around because they're fighting against their own trauma. Yeah. And that's, you know, just maybe something to put on the back burner, but I, I do see that. One thing that I have a question about is with all of this kind of accumulated shame, if you will, I'm unlovable, I'm disgusting, the self-hatred and not feeling like you were strong enough to create the changes that you wanted in these conversion therapy programs. Do you feel like that shame led to behavioral patterns that we're un, unwanted or unhealthy. I often say that we will always soothe ourselves with the one thing that shames us. 
they go hand in hand. Did, do you, did you, or do, do you have any behaviors that kind of plagued you? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think for me, I've, um, for me in my coming out process, you know, one of the things I like fell into, and you know, I don't, I don't know how to like completely describe this. Um, but I would say like, and you know, I'm not completely out of this, but I, I have like experimented with like hookup culture, like a lot. And, um, I think that's definitely been like a way for me to cope with, mm-hmm. um, with like my, with like, you know, the, this sort of shame, you know, is, and again, I don't, I don't want to pay with broad, you know, like with, 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 you know, with, with broad strokes and say that everybody who participates in, in hookup culture is like dealing with their own trauma. But I think, um, the way that I've participated in it, it comes from a very like hungry and like lustful and like just very like needy place looking for like affirmation and looking for like, um, like sometimes I like think about it and like, I'm like when I'm on apps like Grindr, like I'm not even looking for like sex. I'm looking for somebody that just like really wants me. Like that's, that's like really what I want. And, um, and yet at, at the same time, because of my shame, um, when I've tried to date and tried to sort of have a more like normative, like, Oh, let's go on a couple of dates. Let's sort of like establish the relationship, sort of have that type of relationship. Um, I actually see myself balking at like, uh, too much commitment or like folks that get infatuated with me because, um, there's this constant voice in my head. That's like, there is something wrong with you. Um, and if people don't see that and, and they're, and and they're attracted to you, then that means that there's something wrong with them. Mm -hmm. And so like, I've sort of like really internalized the shame a lot like with my sexuality and with like my romantic um pursuits to the point that like i many times i feel like i can't really have fulfilling relationships and i can only have like one-off you know um sexual um purely physical um relationships mm-hmm. and i think it's just me sort of coping with that with that sort of shame mm-hmm. from from that and you know yeah yeah, and that's I, I I definitely do that with that. Yeah, I almost kind of hear this narrative that says there's definitely something wrong with me, therefore there's definitely something wrong with this this relationship, yeah. Yeah. this love. Yeah, 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 and and I think for me it's like you know not to blame everything on conversion therapy, but like. I think for me, there's also just like a perfect storm of, you know, having a lot of like relationship trauma. Like uh, my parents got divorced when I was 16 and their marriage was um, 40% good and 60% like traumatically bad like mm-hmm. for me. And so like um, the, the one romantic relationship I had like a front row seat to was like very stressful and like very traumatic. And so like, 
Um, I just like, uh, don't, um, I just like my biggest fear is to repeat the same mistakes that my parents made, um, when they got married Mm -hmm. and like when they sort of made like those decisions as a couple. So it's like, you know, not, not only do I have this shame that tells me like, Oh, there's probably something wrong with this relationship. But then when I feel that my first instinct is to run because it's like, I saw what a long-term relationship could do to my parents and the emotional toll and the like, violence that it could cause and i'm like i don't want that for my life i would i would i would rather be alone <laughs> than to than to face that and so yeah so it's yeah yeah it sounds like a combination of this internalized homophobia of i'm wrong but then this fear of avoid the violence yeah that's going to make yeah. long-term relationships feel really impossible imagine. yeah 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 and that's and that's exactly the word like impossible like that's that's how long-term relationships feel right now like they feel um completely impossible and um and and that's why sometimes i'm just like yeah i I think i just really need to go to therapy (laughs) um because it, it just it just feels like the um like that is something that i need to um overcome and um really talk through sure you know, I'm I'm sitting here thinking that there's, it sounds like there's these competing forces within you. Like in one sense, whether it's happening in the like dating in real life or on Grindr, but trying to find somebody who wants you. Not, yeah. not the sexual thing, but this emotionally connected, I am seen, I am cherished, I am enough kind of craving. And so pulling relationships close in, but then feeling that shame and fear and then pushing them out at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 a hundred percent me. <laughs> mm-hmm. I am I I've I've done that with every single um like dating relationship that I've started. Um, and yeah, with, with every, with everyone that's ever shown any interest in, 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 in doing more than like a one night stand Mm is always like, okay, like, I don't know how to deal with this. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, in my story, the way that I use hookup culture is very much, it sounds like similar to the way that you did, but I remember talking with my therapist and painting this picture that I was um, trapped in a desert and there's no water, there's no nutrients. And it's almost like I could download this alternate reality on my phone and step through and then sit down at this buffet. Yeah. It was wrapped with all of this sexuality, but underneath the sex, I was thinking if I could get someone like him to want someone like me and he wants me, someone like him would want me. Then it feels like I'm sitting down at this buffet table and just gorging myself and fueling up, you know, with all of this information that could make my self-esteem run for a very long time. But with gorging in a starving position, you kind of make a mess everywhere. Yeah. Blueberry pie all over your white shirt kind of a thing, you know? Mm -hmm. 
And so then again, we kind of have this idea that the one thing that soothes me is the one thing that leaves me dressed and kind of smattered or splattered with my own shame. Yeah. Yeah. No, like a hundred percent. I am when I, when I go on grinder and I'm, and I'm one of those people that like deletes grinder and then reinstalls it and then deletes it and then reinstalls it. And so when I've like gone a while without using grinder and I reinstall it, um, it's almost like, Oh yes, I can chat with so many people. And, you know, for me, it's, it's honestly like the buildup that is like the best, you know, just, just like having that connection and, and, um, yeah. And like, and as you said, like knowing that that other person wants me is, is like validating. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to break this down a little bit more, but I kind of, I want to reverse just a little bit and I'll see if I can sew this in. But I remember specifically, there was one therapy session of mine where I realized in a very profound way that when we experience this incredible pleasure, like looking at gay porn or having a one night stand, and it leads to shame, you know, the mom catching us with porn or the hookup making us feel more lonely, more rejected than it did connected. What happens is it sounds kind of basic, but it's very, very subconscious, but pleasure actually gets commingled with the shame itself. And so it feels good to experience shame. Mm. And that becomes a very, very powerful vortex, if you will, where the shame feels so good. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've never, I've never heard that before, but yeah, just, just like thinking through it, it, it makes sense. Yeah. And because it's so pleasurable and oftentimes because it's the sexuality piece, we almost can say, this shame feels so good. I deserve it. Mm. Almost out of this entitlement. And I kind of, I want to break that down a little bit because when we see how shame paired with pleasure can create this momentous process, the one thing that I think is really important for us to distinguish is the shame from the innocence of the cravings that we have to, to allow the shame to sit on one side in its own canister and then to pull out the pleasure and the innocence, the beauty, dare I even say the sacredness that it holds is a process that allows us to then engage the pleasure that leaves us feeling connected, proud, enough, wanted. And that might make sex and dating and relationships feel like safety 
rather than a threat. Yeah. What's, I can almost hear the wheels spinning. What you thinking? Yeah, I mean, the first thing that comes to my head is um, you know, something I've thought about, you know, when I've, when I've struggled with my mental health um, and, I, and I can feel myself sort of like spiraling into like a depressive episode, there's almost like this moment right before I sort of like lay down in bed or like wallow where it's like I'm sort of like I mean, yeah, like there's no other word for it except like kind of like excited Mm -hmm. to sort of like replay these familiar emotions of like, oh, I'm disgusting. I'm horrible. Mm -hmm. Like, like, yeah, like, yeah, like they've become so familiar Mm -hmm. and they've, and they, yeah, that they, yeah, that like, like you said, like, I mean, that they almost feel pleasurable, you know, because to a certain extent, like they're like they're mine and, and I can, and I can feel, you know, and I can feel them. And yeah, I think, I think they're so familiar that they, we kind of own them. I also think that they've so been associated with pleasure, not like a, a smile from a greeting card kind of pleasure, but like, oxytocin and vasopressin these powerful hormones moving through our brain like pleasure yeah and that is quite an association and then we almost i think some of us we can we would never say this rationally but i think we experience it subconsciously as I am proud of who I am and what I do. There's a part of this that leaves me feeling powerful, yeah. in charge, autonomous, in a closeted, with a closeted history where I have felt so powerless and unimportant. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's exactly it. I mean, one of the I mean, just like one of the biggest emotions that has stuck with me and that I just remember feeling and it just like, is just like stamped on me from my time in conversion therapy and just, just in my time growing up as, as, you know, like when I was 13, 14 is like just the powerlessness of like the situation I was in. Like, I just, I just remember feeling like absolutely powerless. Like I had no agency. Uh-huh to make these decisions for myself. And I just had to go along um, to survive, to survive in sort of like the the circumstances. And so like, now that I can make the choice, now that I, now that I technically have more agency, um, yeah, just in like the fact that I can choose these emotions of shame, mm-hmm. um, there is sort of like a, like a sick sort of like empowerment in in, in me Mm -hmm. about that. Yeah. I think that shame is just such, it almost feels like, uh, like it has evolved so much as our enemy 
that it has found a way to sneak in like a parasite. It has found a way to sneak in, build an environment that lives off of our own pleasure to the point where it then even becomes part of our identity. Yeah. (laughs) It's so, it's scary how evolved and how sophisticated shame can be. Yeah. One of the things that I think is very um, clinically significant mm-hmm. for many reasons is we, whenever I hear the word powerlessness, it really kind of activates kind of another section for me because when we feel powerless, you used, you said this phrase, I just wanted to survive or I just, I was trying to survive. I think you said, but it's this, uh, it's this phenomenon when we feel so powerlessness, we will, our, our little fight, flight, or freeze. It's not little, our massive fight, flight, or freeze mechanism in the brain turns on. It's a whole powerful force. But when that's activated, we're in trauma mode. And so we're trying to survive and make these decisions and piece everything together with a body that is just trying to survive. And I think that that deserves some credit here because we're not choosing how to soothe ourselves from a rational place where we're cool, calm, and collected. We're trying to again, this, this image of being in the desert when I'm about to die from starvation and I can access a buffet table, you better believe I'm going to dash, sprint to that. Yeah, 100%. So with that being said, where do you feel powerful right now in your life? Where... Where does confidence or self-esteem live? Yeah, I feel the first thing that came to my head and, you know, kind of tied into what you were saying, you know, sort of this dichotomy of like powerlessness when, when I was a teenager. And now, like speaking of like when I feel powerful, when I feel confident is, um, is in my friend group, is in my, is in my friendships. Um, that I made when I was in college. Um, uh, I was, I was, I was, I was blessed to have a a college experience when I could, where I could really explore sort of all these sort of topics. And, um, and, you know, I had a safe space and like, and like a, and like a safe group of friends um, that took me as like a, as like a really conservative, um, you know, like my world was like super small because of like my religious upbringing. Um, And they walked with me through my deconstruction and my coming out process. And so like, I feel like really powerful uh, amongst those friends that I made in college and, and in friendships I've made since then. Mm -hmm. Um, That's like, that's like one area where, um, where I feel really good about sort of, um, the relationships that I've made and, and the commitments I've made and like the love that I've given and the love that I've received. Mm -hmm. Um, 
yeah. And that's, and that's been really powerful for me. That's great. Yeah. I want to meet again, if that's okay with you. Yeah. And I'd like to maybe, uh, send you home, if you will, with some homework. <laughs> okay. Yeah, for sure. Cool. What I, what I really want you to do is take assessment and we're going to work with this next time, but to track what feels clean inside of friendship that doesn't feel clean inside of romance or romantic relationships. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so what feels clean inside of friendship and what doesn't feel clean inside of romance? Right. Okay. So like things like vulnerability with friends feels clean, but not with a potential partner or right. Yeah. My desire for um, affection feels clean with friends, but not with romance. Okay. What we're going to do here is kind of, break down some of the internalized homophobia mm-hmm. described by really tackling or, or taking inventory of the desires that not only underscore relationships, but also sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I would, I would love that. Thank you. Yeah. things that is littered throughout my personal history and I heard a lot about in today's guest's history is this idea that shame and pleasure go hand in hand. It is one of the most weird experiences to feel so much shame tied to so much pleasure, but that's what happens when we're dealing with sexuality. The behaviors, the sexual behaviors that come from a shameful place a shame bind, as we call it, can feel so good physically, sexually, and emotionally. To see that tie of shame and pleasure go hand in hand can leave us in a massive ball of confusion. What is it about this experience that I need to drop because it's full of shame? And what part of it do I need to embrace because it brings so much pleasure? One of the ways that we can untangle this ball of yarn is by assessing which desires are wrapped in a shame bind. Maybe it's the desire for pleasure, the desire to be held or pleasured by someone of the same gender. Maybe it's shame around a particular act that is driven by the desire for control, to be controlled, to feel sexy. Whatever desire feels shamed will produce a shameful behavior. As a means of rescuing our sexuality from a shame bind, we must make peace with the desires that are driving our sexuality. We talk about this on the podcast often because it's such a powerful facet of our subconscious or implicit reality. Another thing that stands out for me is the deconstruction. Many of us queer people come from a faith background, and deconstructing that faith I believe is a very important step, not for everybody, but for some of us in terms of healing from the spiritual abuse that can happen. I think that religions of all kinds are the root system to homophobia, transphobia, biphobia, xenophobia, 
possibly oppression and bigotry in general. A lot of religions have their origin in maintaining power and as a way of reclaiming our own power, some of us need to go through that deconstruction process so that we can heal from the spiritual abuse. There's many other facets to the deconstruction like spiritual development, moral development. If anybody is interested in this, I would strongly suggest reading the work of Ken Wilber. Integral Theory is a great start. One of my favorite books of his is Trump in the Post-Truth World, and it describes integral theory using the example of the Trump administration and the Trump election. It is a great way of understanding how people move through different moral stages. Many of us have the architects of our own internalized homophobia like today's guest. We have influential parents, pastors, school teachers, bullies on the playground that begin planting those seeds that shift the way that we see ourselves. Again, those statements, I am unlovable, I am disgusting, I am not enough, so forth and so on. Internalized homophobia is something that really requires a lot of self-awareness and a lot of shame reduction in order to heal from. Of course, it's definitely an Isaac Archuleta-ism, if you will, but we need to pay attention to the way we experience our own desires. We can experience them as something we're embarrassed and shamed of or something that feels innocent and beautiful. If there's a desire that feels shame-filled within our internal experience, and if it also defines the way we experience our own attractions, our own queerness, our own sexuality, our own gender, that could be internalized homophobia or transphobia. To reclaim those desires means we must work at demantling the shame bind that wraps up and starts to suffocate recharacterize that desire. One of the biggest things that we talked about, and it's a very powerful mechanism of psychology, is the powerlessness. Whenever we experience powerlessness, we will go into fight, flight, or freeze. And from there, the body will literally shut down, and it'll be robbed of its resources to overcome the challenge. So part of reclaiming the desire is also reclaiming your power. In the to-be-continued follow-up episode with this guest, we're going to unpack this a little bit more. I hope you stay tuned. And to today's guest, thank you so much. I think that your vulnerability is healing. Your courage is astounding. And you have a little place in my heart, just so you know. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Queer Relationships is a podcast sponsored by I Am Clinic, a counseling practice devoted to the LGBTQ plus community with in-person and virtual counseling options available. I Am Clinic, create the love lives and relationships you crave. Find us online on Instagram at LGBTQ underscore therapy and Facebook at I Am Clinic. That's I-A-M Clinic. I Am Clinic.